Good morning. I am just so impressed with the, uh, the providence of God in having dropped me here at the church right at the time when you're starting this incredible series on Jonah. I'm really just the missionary here to present my work, but there's so much interesting parallel with respect to what I'm doing and what Jonah did. First of all, you may recall that Jonah was a Jewish missionary slash prophet who was a bit shocked by the uh, invitation by God, well, actually, the commission of God, to go to the nations. He was kind of a reluctant prophet. Uh, I am a Jewish missionary to the Jewish people. I've been serving with Chosen People Ministries, which is a 116-year-old mission agency. We're serving in about 17 nations, uh, reaching Jewish people for Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus Christ. And... Um, I've been working in this area, planting messianic congregations. That's, that's not churches for messy people. <laughs> messy people need the gospel, but this is actually speaking of Jewish-oriented churches. We've been planting these congregations in the area. Many Jewish people have come to faith. It's been a wonderful, exciting ministry. But now I'm kind of shocked that God has sent me to New Zealand uh, in an outreach to the nations, and I'll explain more about that later. Jonah also, you recall when he began his ministry, uh, he went down, 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 down. He went from Tarshish to the port. He went from the port to the top of the boat. He went from the top of the boat to the bottom of the boat. He went from the bottom of the boat to the ocean. And he went from the ocean to the belly of a fish. Well, I've gone down, 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 down too, starting in Montgomery County and going all the way down to New Zealand which about is as far down as you can go. The next stop from New Zealand is Antarctica. So um, where I live, you go north to warm up, uh, which is a bizarre paradigm. But there's also something, another interesting parallel with respect to Jewish missions and this study on Jonah. You're studying the heart of God for the world, for the nations. And to do that, you really have to start with the nation Israel. Has it ever occurred to you that the reason my people exist is because God so loved the world? The Jewish people are really the only people group who, who exists because of a promise God made to a guy named Abraham, who himself wasn't Jewish. He was the son of a, an idol worshiper. And in this promise, in Genesis chapter 12, he said, Abraham, through you and through your ancestors, speaking of the nation Israel, I'm going to deliver blessings to whom? To every family on the earth. And so when we're talking about God's heart for the nations, it's entirely appropriate to begin with the nation Israel. That's really what I'm here to talk about today. Israel is in the news quite a bit these days, and it's important to understand who she is, what her function is in the redemptive theater. What role does she play? When you're talking about God's heart for the nations, you really have to consider that his love for the world has been delivered through the Jewish people. I mean, everything we call Christian, all the greatest blessings that we experience have come through this, this dispensary called the nation Israel. Our scriptures have come through the Jewish people. Our Savior has come through the Jewish people. And even our salvation, Jesus said in John chapter 4, salvation is of the Jews. And so we have Jewish roots. I don't care if your name is Rosenstein or O'Reilly. If you're trusting Christ as your Savior today, we have a common heritage. The very soil which bore the messianic seed of Jesus Christ is the same soil which sprouted the church, which, by the way, was comprised entirely originally of whom? 
Jews. Yeah, I mean, who ever heard of Gentiles for Jesus? That was a bizarre idea. You know, that didn't work. So we're going to consider today where Israel stands prophetically. I want, to, I want to propose to you that she is both secure and she is threatened. She's secure in her vertical relationship with God, but she's threatened in her horizontal relationship with the world. Now, first of all, with regard to this security in her relationship with God, this is certainly true. There's so much scripture that backs it up. We're going to look at a little bit. But some Christians are saying otherwise. A large part of the Christian world is saying, you know, God is finished with the Jewish people. He set them aside because of their unbelief and their disobedience. Now, interestingly, even the Jewish people had a similar notion in biblical history. You'll find it in various parts of the scripture, but I'm going to point out one in particular. It's in Isaiah chapter 49. Ah, look at that. You turned there so quickly. That was really impressive. Isaiah chapter 49 and verse 14. We're talking about the fact that even Israel felt that God had forsaken them. Listen to what she said in verse Isaiah 49 and verse 15. Excuse me, 14. But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me, and my Lord has forgotten me. Now listen to the divine response. Listen to what God says in response. Can a woman forget her nursing child and not have compassion on the son of her womb? May I see the hands of any guys here who are married to a woman who nursed a child? All right, good, you understand. I have seven children, as I've mentioned. Uh, all of my children, my wife has nursed. And uh, I get it now, I kind of understand all the dynamics. But when the first one came around, this was a major shock for me that this two-headed monster was going to be living in our house for quite a long time. I don't mean to be too graphic, but when you're talking about a mother nursing her child, it's quite an intimate relationship. And I thought it was pretty cool for the first week or two weeks or three weeks, but after a few months, I realized I am definitely left out of this relationship. <laughs> and I decided, you know what, I'm going to have a date with my wife. And so um, we actually found a babysitter. Now, if you've ever tried to find a babysitter that pleases your wife for her firstborn child, you know how rigorous that can be. I mean, this poor girl, you know, we checked her background, foreground, and midground. Uh, we gave her a police check, a theology check, and a health check. She had to state the 10 points of systematic theology. <laughs> I mean, she had to be perfect. And finally, when she passed the test, and Margie handed over her precious Lara to this babysitter, off we went for our date. Guess what we talked about all the way to the restaurant? Guess who called twice in the 20-minute drive to the restaurant to see if precious Lara was still okay? We get to the restaurant. What do we talk about through the whole meal? The baby. Can a nursing woman forget her nursing child? Finally, we get to the movie. I'm thinking, okay, finally, we'll get a little bit of distraction from this baby, okay? We'll be in a dark room and focused on a screen. The lights go out. The movie comes up. And suddenly, from the back of the theater, an infant cries. Now, I don't understand all the dynamics. I've been a non-female all my life. But something, happened calls, something happens called letting milk down. And Margie looks at me and says, we got to go home now. The question is asked, can a woman forget her nursing child? No. But look at what the Lord says. 
He says in verse 15, the latter part, yes, there's a better chance that a nursing mom would forget them than God forgetting Israel. And then he goes on to say, Israel, I have graven you upon the palms of my hands. Brothers and sisters, there's no part of your body that you look at more than the palms of your hands. God is not finished with the Jewish people. But don't get me wrong, the Bible teaches that God will actually forsake Israel under certain circumstances. It's kind of bizarre, but there it is. It's right in the next chapter, excuse me, the next book of Jeremiah. We're turning to Jeremiah 31. And I'm going to be looking at Jeremiah 31 and verse 35. Listen to these words. Thus says the Lord who gives the sun for a light by day and the ordinances of the moon and the stars for a light by night, who disturbs the sea and its waves roar. Adonai Tzvaot, the Lord of hosts is his name. If those ordinances depart from before me, says the Lord, then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if heaven above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, then I will cast off all the seed of Israel for all that they have done, says the Lord. See, the enemies of Israel throughout history have done it all wrong. They got it backwards. If you want to destroy Israel, first you've got to do a few things, okay? The first thing you've got to do is interrupt the cycle of nature. Not a big deal. Just extinguish the sun, snuff out the moon, pluck out the stars, and still the tides. And when you're done with that, get a really big ladder and a big ruler and thoroughly measure the heavens. When you're done with that, get some shovels and some friends, dig down to the core of the earth, and thoroughly search the core of the earth, then come back and work over the Jewish people. God says, under those circumstances, they will cease from being a nation before me. Wait a minute, you know, I got that wrong, I'm sorry. It won't work, because God instituted a fail-safe foreign policy for his people Israel. It won't be as easy as I thought. See, in Genesis chapter 12, God said to Abraham, and then he said to Isaac, and then he said to Jacob, speaking of them and their descendants, which would be the nation Israel, I will curse those who curse you, and those who bless you I will bless. I'll delegate curse for curse, blessing for blessing. And brothers and sisters, the pages of biblical history prove the veracity of this prophetic policy. Think about it. Go all the way back to Exodus chapter 1. Pharaoh determines to curse Israel by murdering its baby boys. He has a twofold strategy. First, he's going to murder them in their homes through the Hebrew midwives, and then he's going to murder them by drowning them in the Nile River. God said, no. No, no, no. I've promised curse for curse, blessing for blessing. And God turns the curse back on Egypt. <clears throat> he destroys Egypt's males first in their homes on Passover night, the 10th plague, and secondly by drowning Remember, Pharaoh's armies were drowned in the Red Sea. Curse for curse, blessing for blessing. If you fast forward a little bit in the Bible, you come to the book of Esther. <clears throat> you remember that guy Haman? Haman is the guy the Jews love to hate. He was that self-righteous prime minister of Persia. He's determined to curse the Jewish people. And so he builds a gallows 75 feet high. It's looming all over Shushan, Persia. And his idea is to hang his first Jew, Mordechai, who wouldn't bow to his holiness. And then after, 
He planned to destroy all the children of Israel. God said, no, I'm, I curse those who curse Israel. I bless those who bless Israel. And by the end of the book, you may recall, who's hanging from Haman's gallows but Haman himself. And then the children of Haman, his ten sons. Dear ones, the outworking of this prophetic policy is not confined to biblical history. Does anybody remember the name Adolf Eichmann? Eichmann was Hitler's top henchman in the Second World War. And after the war, Eichmann the hunter became Eichmann the hunted. And finally, he was found in 1962. He was tried and convicted and sentenced to death in Israel. Do you know that we know Eichmann's last recorded words before he was killed? His last recorded words were these. Haman, 1962. Adolf Eichmann found out too late that this foreign policy is still operative today. Folks, God is not finished with the Jewish people, and the fact is reinforced in the New Testament. In Romans chapter 3, verses 3 and 4, the question is asked, didn't the unbelief of the Jewish people nullify their place in God's plan? Didn't God set them aside? The response is emphatic. It's as emphatic as the Greek can get before it's cursing. God forbid. Absolutely not. In Romans 11, verses 1 and 2, a slightly different question is asked. Has God rejected his people Israel? And there's the same response. God forbid. And later in verse 29, we're reminded, their calling by God, Israel's calling is irrevocable. Those promises will never be revoked, regardless of her disposition toward their God. So where does Israel stand prophetically? Well, in one sense, she's very secure in her everlasting covenant with God. He's not finished with them. They are an everlasting nation. But my second and final point this morning is, while she's secure... She's also desperately threatened. The Bible forecasts, and you've probably read it in the major prophets, a hideous slaughter, twice the proportion of the first slaughter in the Holocaust of 65, 70 years ago. And to make things even worse, many Christians today are dangerously apathetic toward the Jewish people. Many are thinking there, there's really no need to evangelize them. Some are saying, well, the Bible says that the Jewish people are blinded. Their hearts are hardened. I mean, why bother sharing the gospel with them if, if God himself says this? And after all, the Bible says that all Israel shall be saved. I mean, if, if Israel's going to be saved, why send missionaries to them? What's the deal? Well, the big question is, does the Bible say that? Well, let's check it out. We'll find it in the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 11, and beginning in verse 25. Romans eleven twenty-five. Paul is speaking to the Gentile believers in Rome. He says, I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that hardening, or some scriptures will say blindness, in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. Now, wait a minute. It does say that. It does say that blindness has happened to Israel. But what does the text say about that blindness? It says that the blindness, now catch this, this is important, it's, it's a partial and temporary blindness. 
It is never a comprehensive hardening of the heart or blindness of spiritual sight. First of all, consider this partial blindness of the Jewish people. Dear ones, there has always been and always will be a remnant of Jews with spiritual eyesight. There's always a small group. You know, my wife, uh, being the mother of seven, does a lot of sewing. And sometimes she'll send me to the fabric store to get some fabric. And sometimes we're looking for remnants. Now, if you know anything about fabric stores, uh, you know that there's something called a remnant table. And I never ask young clerks where the remnant table is because they never know. The remnant table is always in some dark, dusty, forgotten corner of the store because it holds those, those useless ends of the bolts, those little pieces that nobody really wants, nobody remembers. God says, I have something just like that, a forgotten, useless, worthless group of people to the world, but to me, a critical part of redemptive history, a small group of Jews who would always believe. Think about it. Isaiah, when he was commissioned in chapter 6 of Isaiah. You remember that? God says, who will go? And he says, Hineni, here am I. Very much unlike Moses who said, here am I, send Aaron. <laughs> I don't want to go. But no, Isaiah was ready. Now, if you're a leader and you are recruiting volunteers, you know that there are some really important principles for recruiting. The first thing you do with your volunteers is you encourage them. You tell them this is an important job. You tell them there's going to be great fruit out of this, this wonderful work. And, and this, you're going to see a, a, you know, a heritage begun as a result of your volunteer. That's what good leaders do. God apparently is not a really good recruiter. Isaiah says, Hineni, here am I, I'll go. And God says, okay, great. Thanks for volunteering, Isaiah. And by the way, let me give you some information. Hearing, they won't understand, and seeing, they won't perceive. Well, thanks a lot, God, for the encouragement. I really appreciate it. You're sending me to a blind and deaf people? Why? And later in the chapter, we realize why. Because God has a remnant, a tiny, forgotten minority that must hear the gospel. The remnant must hear. The deafness is partial. Think of Elijah. Elijah single-handedly shames the prophets of Baal. Jezebel, that witchy queen, she's not very happy about it, and she's chasing Elijah, trying to kill him. She chases him all the way to Mount Sinai. He's at the base of Mount Horeb there, and he's fetching to God. He's complaining. He says, I'm the only one left. There's nobody left. Everybody is blind. Everybody is hardened in Israel. Do you remember how God responded? <laughs> Elijah no, you're not the only one left. I've got 7,000 reserved in Israel who haven't bowed the knee to Baal. 7,000 isn't a huge group. It's just a remnant, and that's the point. The remnant must hear. And frankly, I can tell you from my own testimony, as a Jewish person who believed in Jesus Christ as the Messiah of Israel, when I made that decision in 1981, I thought I was the only Jew in the entire world who ever did such a crazy thing. And so did my parents, believe me. But now I've come to believe and understand that tens of, maybe hundreds of thousands of Jewish people believe. Not a huge number in terms of the, the, uh, the, the millions of Jews who exist, but it's a remnant. You see, the blindness is partial, but it's also temporary, the scripture says. The blindness will end, according to the book, when the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. Well, that's interesting. I wonder what that is. 
Well, actually, we can find out from the, the words of Jesus himself. If we turn to the book of Luke and chapter 21, Luke chapter 21 and verse 24, listen to these words from Jesus himself concerning the time of the times of the Gentiles. He's speaking of days to come in Israel. He says, They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all nations. Jerusalem will be trampled by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Okay, there we got it. The times of the Gentiles, according to Jesus himself, will be fulfilled when two criteria are satisfied. Number one, when Jews are no longer held captive in foreign lands. And number two, when Jerusalem is no longer trodden down by the Gentiles. Jerusalem is no longer under Gentile domination. Have those criteria been satisfied? Are the Jews any longer slaves or captives in nations? Well, for 1,900 years, shortly after Jesus said these words, the temple came down, the Jews were dispersed all over the world, they were captive in foreign nations until something crazy, wonderful, supernatural happened on May 14, 1948, 7.30 a.m., a nation that had been dead, dry bone buried in the sands of so-called Palestine suddenly resurrected in a day. And upon that resurrection, all the nations of the world kind of belched out the Jewish people who returned to their homeland, all except Russia. Russia held on to her Jewish people, and finally when the Soviet Union dissolved, they released the Russian Jews to return to their homeland. This prophecy is fulfilled in your hearing right now. No longer are Jews anywhere held captive in foreign lands. What about the second criterion, that Jerusalem is no longer trodden down of the Gentiles? 1967, after 1900 years of Jerusalem in Gentile domination, a six-day miraculous war occurs in which finally Jerusalem is returned to her rightful owner, Israel. All except the Temple Mount. And right now, the Temple Mount itself is not in Jewish hands. And so this prophecy is close to, but not totally fulfilled. But here's the point, guys. We are fast approaching the fulfillment of the times of the Gentiles, and simultaneously, we're, we're witnessing the restoration of spiritual sightedness of the Jewish people. The blindness is partial, and it's temporary. But what about this guarantee that all Israel shall be saved? I mean, if that's true, why bother missionizing or evangelizing the Jewish people? Well, it wouldn't be necessary if the all Israel being spoken of there referred to all the Jewish people alive today. But it doesn't. I wish it did, but it doesn't. We're going to look at Zechariah chapter 13. The context in Zechariah 13 is the time of Jacob's trouble. The scripture says that all the nations of the earth, now listen to this, this includes the United States of America, all the nations of the earth shall come against Jerusalem. It will be a global attempt on genocide. The eradication of the Jewish people on behalf of all the nations of the earth. Reading from Zechariah chapter 13, verses 8 and 9, speaking of the Jewish people. It shall come to pass in all the land, says the Lord, that two-thirds in it shall be cut off and die, but one-third shall be left in it. I will bring the one-third through the fire. I will refine them as silver is refined. I will test them as gold is tested. 
They will call on my name. I will answer them. I will say, this is my people. And each one will say, the Lord is my God. Brothers and sisters, the day is soon approaching when all the destructive forces of the world will zero in on the Jewish people. Two-thirds will perish. By today's statistics, that's talking about 10 million Jews. One out of three of my people died in the first Holocaust. Two out of three will perish in the second. And all who survive will receive the Messiah. That's the all Israel spoken of. Now, look, I'm not trying to be sensationalizing here. I'm not trying to drum up some sympathies just because I'm a Jewish person. I'm sharing from you prophecy from the scriptures. And I'm hoping you're going to see that in light of this, it's so easy to see why the Jewish people so desperately need to hear the message of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, Forgive me for the morbid illustration, but suppose you had three kids and you love your kids, you would give your life for your children. But suppose you received a, a divine visitor and you knew this was from God. And this visitor said to you, from the voice of God, I've got some bad news. Very, very soon, two out of three of your children will die a hideous, violent death, but one will survive. How would you respond? I know exactly how you would respond. You'd stop everything and invest every fiber of your being toward ushering all of your three children toward the safety of God's salvation in Jesus Christ. If you can't save their bodies, at least know that they'll be eternally secure in the person of Jesus himself. Brothers and sisters, two out of three of the children of Israel are in this predicament right now. Right now. Where does Israel stand? Ironically, she's secure in that God is not finished with her any more than he's finished with the ordinances of the sun, moon, stars, and sea. But she's hideously threatened in that much of the Christian world is generally apathetic regarding the spiritual dilemma of the Jewish people. And the saddest part of it all is these are the days of Jewish reclamation of the Jewish people, uh, of Jesus himself. These are the days when more Jewish people are coming to faith in Christ than ever before since Acts chapter 2. These are great days for Jewish evangelism. I'm going to wrap it up right now by just sharing very, very quickly what I'm doing in New Zealand. Now, obviously, my heart is for my people. I've, been, I've spent the last 22 years as a missionary for the Jewish people. What in the world are you doing in New Zealand? There's not many Jewish people residing there. But there's an amazing phenomenon occurring. And this, again, is riveted to the theme of Jonah. Oh, there we are. If you, forgot, uh, if you slept through geography... <laughs> um, New Zealand is a pair of little islands the size of Colorado. They're combined acreage. And uh, it's floating between the Tasman Sea and the uh, uh, South Pacific, about 1,500 miles southeast of Australia. Now, this place is beautiful. That word is so anemic. It is so understating the truth about New Zealand. Come on down. I promise you an eye-popping, heart-pounding amazing tour. You will fall in love with, this, with the creator of this creation. Now, here's the point. On my island, only one, people, one, one million people reside. Forty million sheep, but one million people. This explains why it's so green. It's extremely well fertilized. <laughs> okay. But 2.4, now listen to this, 2.4 million tourists generally 
young international people age about 18 to about 32 are visiting every single year. Two and a half million to an island that contains a million residents. Now, why are they coming? They're coming for all kinds of crazy reasons, to do bungee jumping or to jump out of planes or do all kinds of extreme sports. But mostly, they're coming to see the most beautiful island on the world. They're hiking, or as they would say, tramping through. And the pictures I'm showing you are very easy to see. I, these are my pictures, and I didn't have to work very hard to get them. This is what New Zealand looks like. And as you're traveling through this kind of beauty, it's evoking a sense of, of worship for the creator of this creation. Uh, if you like the beach, I mean, that's my daughter. She's used to Ocean City, where the beach is a sea of flesh. And uh, she's excited to find that she can go around and pick a beach. This is in the middle of summer. There's nobody on the beach because there's not many people. This is New Zealand. Interestingly, you can take a hike through a bona fide rainforest, which is what you see on the left, and step out of the rainforest onto a glacier. That's the glacier on the right. It's filled with natural anomalies, things that don't make sense at all. Now, what you're seeing here is our ministry. The blue circle represents our ministry center, which is a campground which we own in the south central part of the South Island. And those red circles that are appearing around are showing you the route, the prescribed route of these backpackers. And this is an important point. The backpackers are very young, savvy, intelligent, spiritual, interesting people, many of whom, most of whom, are on some sort of spiritual or personal quest. They're out here to, to, make, uh, you know, to seek answers to life's most important questions. They're really in a place to be reached with the gospel of Jesus. And Wanaka, which is to the left of the blue circle, is where we do most of our ministry. Uh, Wanaka, because everybody ends up eventually in Wanaka. Now, the reason being, Wanaka is this quaint, beautiful little town. It's at the bottom of a huge lake, surrounded by snow-capped mountains. It's a, it's a fabulous place where you can do all the extreme sports. And this is where all the backpackers eventually arrive. And so what we do, believe it or not, is we throw weekly barbecues. All right? Now, this is only one of the evangelistic things we do, but right here is a, the site of our, of our ministry. And every Saturday afternoon, we go to all the backpacker facilities. We put whiteboards up, and the whiteboard says, free food tomorrow down by the lake. Uh, please come. Now, the words free food are nowhere found in New Zealand, in a land where petrol is $7.50 a gallon, a, a cheap McDonald's meal is 12 to 15 bucks. Believe me, free food is a draw. On the whiteboard, we say also that during the barbecue, someone will share about their life-changing encounter with God. No secrets, no deception. And so, the next day we set up our tables. It's a beautiful place. No one's in a hurry. Everyone's in a holiday mood. It's a perfect environment for a relationship, for conversation. We have a book table with many Bibles and gospel literature in many languages, including Hebrew. And then they come. Now, very interestingly, the first group that comes are the scouts. <laughs> These are the guys who are thinking, let's see if this is really true. And when they come down and they find out, oh my goodness, this is free burgers and free hot dogs, they text all their friends, and then the wave comes down, <laughs> down to the lake. It's so funny. So every time we do this, we get 50 to 70 international people. They're starting to line up now, and they begin to have these little circles on the lawn. This lawn will be filled with these circles of people. Now, here's the amazing point. 
Within 30 minutes of this picture, we're going to have 15 to 25 nations represented on this lawn. Nations represented by the key influencers, the catalysts, the change makers of this world. These are the, this generation's and coming generation's leaders. So what we have here is a marriage of the Great Commission with the Great Strategy. The Great Commission make, being make disciples of all nations. The Great Strategy being start here in Jerusalem, Acts chapter 1 verse 8, go to Judea, Samaria, and then New Zealand. <laughs> that's not a joke. If you look at the, the, the major city that is opposite from Jerusalem on the planet is Wellington, New Zealand. We are on the uttermost parts of the earth making disciples of all nations. It is astounding. At some point, one of our team members comes up and says, guys, thanks for coming. Hey, listen, we want to share some important information with you. And then that's when I get up and I stand and I just begin to talk. It's not, not a long talk. It's about seven to ten minutes. And I'll be sharing the gospel. Now, the first time I did this, I thought, this is terrible. They got their free burger. They're going to hear the word God. They're all going to be gone. They didn't leave. In fact, not only did they not leave, they were riveted to the message. In fact, not only were they riveted to the message, but after I shared the gospel, do you know what they did? They applauded. When's the last time you were applauded for sharing the gospel? It was crazy. I thought, this is a fluke. This will never happen again. They all must be Christians, you know, or, some, or they're crazy. Dear ones, I've been doing this for two years. And every week, we get the same response. Because what these people are hearing are the words of life. They're sick and tired of hearing you know, paper-thin, vaporous, hollow, plastic, human philosophies. They're hearing the words of life, and it's compelling them to respond. And then we share prayer with them. Uh, we share Bibles with them. My children are involved. When children are present, they provide a beautiful, welcoming, loving, safe environment. And my children are working among these people, handing out Bibles, praying for people. It is an astounding thing. Now, I'm going to close with this because... It's the most really amazing part of the whole thing, this so-called backpacker phenomenon among Israelis. Tens of thousands of Israelis are pouring through the South Island every year. If you Google Israeli backpacker, you'll see sociologists are writing papers about it. Nobody can figure it out. Israelis are coming in these huge numbers. A missionary friend of mine in Israel said, Israelis go to two places, India and New Zealand. They go to India for drugs and New Zealand for God. And that's what we're experiencing. The other side of this phenomenon is that in New Zealand are about 500 Christian households, residents of New Zealand, Kiwi Christians, who are all over the, the country, and they are receiving Israelis in their home, supplying their homes as accommodations at no charge. It's this bizarre, amazing phenomenon. So here you have tens of thousands of Israelis. Here you have Christians who are receiving the Israelis, but the Christians don't know how to share the gospel in a Jewish frame of reference. So what I'm doing is, praise God, I'm going around the whole country and sharing free Jewish evangelism seminars and equipping these people. It's working. Just a few weeks ago, I sat with an Israeli couple, 30 years old, both medical te technicians, just came to Israel to, as usual, hike and just experience the creation. They stayed in these homes, many of which I was privileged to teach, and they got wonderful touches of the gospel in a frame of reference they could receive culturally. And they've come to faith in Jesus. And now they're going back to Israel as believers in the Messiah of Israel. It is so thrilling. I could go on, but uh, you get the point.
wonderful things are happening. I would be so grateful to you if, if this is in any way uh, interested you or pricked your heart, would you pray for us? The, the ministry is superfluous without prayer. And the ministry is expanding so quickly, we don't want to do anything prematurely. We desperately need wisdom and discernment. If you would pray for us, right back there on the table, there's some sign-up sheets, very simple. Write your name and your postal address. I don't have the gift of discernment so if you, or interpretation, so write legibly, if you would, and we'll keep you informed on what's going on. Remember, please, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. They prosper who love Israel. Thank you so much. So we're going to close out the service with a, a final song, and um, appropriately, it's mine the wrong song. No, right. I think I got it buried under this. There we go. <clears throat> so if you'd stand with us, please, and... Um, Let's pray briefly, and then we'll start singing. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to hear of your work around the world. Praise you, Father, for how that is all under your control. Help us to get out of the way so that, that you can do your work through us.